this is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a programme about globalisation and the effects it has had on Ireland and other countries around the world over the last 50 years or so. In each programme, we interview a person from another country or with strong connections to another country to get their unique perspective on globalisation as it has affected them, the country they live in and its relationship with the wider world. There's a little bit of history, a dash of economics, a sprinkling of business and an overlay of personal experience, both for me and from my interviewees from around the world. In recent programmes, we've travelled back and forth across the Atlantic from Europe to the Americas several times, talking to consultants, academics, diplomats and business people. Today, we will be talking to an Irish businessman, but an Irish businessman with a very international outlook, a man who is a serial entrepreneur with very diverse business and personal interests. He's a businessman described by the Irish Times as one of the most unorthodox and successful businessmen operating in Ireland today. The man I'm talking about is John Teeling. In his career, John has been an academic, an explorer and a whiskey distiller. He lectured in business and finance at UCD for 20 years. He's been associated with many businesses in mineral exploration all around the world in Sierra Leone, Iran, Botswana and Jordan. Companies such as Petrel, Botswana Diamonds and now the 162 Group. In the 1980s he set up the Cooley Distillery which he sold to Jim Beam in 2011 and his latest whiskey venture in the, is the Dundalk based Great Northern Distillery. I'm delighted to have John join us on the line to talk about his experiences and reflections on doing business internationally from Ireland and to get his perspective on the future for Ireland in this globalised world. Welcome, John, and thank you very much for being here with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. John, would you be able to tell me a little bit about your career start? How did this all start? I, I read that you uh, studied at UCD and you lectured at UCD. So when and how did the business thing come in? Well, I, uh, UCD was only the start of it. I, I went, uh, after I finished a master's in UCD, I went to the University of Pennsylvania at the Wharton School and did an MBA in finance there. came back to UCD and then went back to Harvard where I did a doctorate, which took a long time <laughs> in finance. But while I was there, I... Uh, worked um, as consultant for the Irish mining industry, which, which uh, during the 70s became totally international. And also I wrote the, uh, the case studies and did the initial work on what would be, would eventually lead to the establishment of the Cooley distilleries. So from a very early age, uh, literally from, from the time I was finished, I, I was educated internationally. My, my initial work, uh, apart from the university, was all in international companies. And between, say, 70 five and maybe 85 uh, I was involved in establishing a, a small number of companies that worked internationally Ireland is so small if you're not international you're, you're, you're not anything yeah and in, in those years 75 to 85 uh, those were kind of my teenage years <laughs> and I remember economically though the, some of those years were quite bleak here at home weren't they so you well, really that was the pr part of the problem yeah. the mining industry which had blossomed um, in the 60s and the early 70s went into a fallow period because of licensing difficulties and title difficulties and prices. So we ended up uh, going to where the minerals were. We established a couple of small Irish companies and went abroad. I, I was at that stage involved in, in financial trading on, on listed companies so I, I got involved in a number of textile companies and for them to grow they had to develop internationally. Now, that was a difficult ask because labour mm. costs were too high in Ireland. But um, I have always, I think, since 
since the big calm days of the early 60s, I have been interested and realised, I think, that the future of Ireland lay internationally. And when you went international in, in those days, what, what kind of challenges did you come up against, say, cultural, linguistic, technical, and so on? All of those and more. Mm-hmm. And they continue to be there. Um, you, uh, on the mineral side, you, 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 you have uh, title difficulties and... Uh, um, you're, you're dealing with the different languages and the different cultures and, and indeed very different cultures where, where people expect to be paid the whole time for things like that. In terms of, of, of selling products, um, what we have traditionally, well, not, maybe not traditionally, but what we have done in the last number of years is we seek local partners, knowledgeable partners who will guide us through the, the morass. And if it involves setting up a local company, they will be shareholders in that company. Mm-hmm. And the more companies, uh, the more work we've done internationally, the more I believe in this in, in, in this process. So that you will always have somebody who can do it, because with the best will in the world, even going into the UK and the US, you are culturally naive. Yeah. And you, you just make mistakes. And these guys can help you uh, avoid the worst, but you still make awful mistakes. Even when you're very experienced, you make bad mistakes. You don't do the right things. You say the wrong thing. Um, <laughs> And, uh, but that's the nature of the business. And when you talk about local partners, are you talking about some form of arm's length strategic partnership? Are you talking actually about joint ventures? Uh, well, they would be almost entirely joint ventures. On, on our mineral side, uh, this is exploration, oil and gas and, and minerals. We've done about 30 joint ventures over about 30 years where you would bring in a local, a local and indeed international partners who would have the... Um, who would have the strength to be able to uh, do the necessary work, either technical or geological or, or local. On terms of the more commercial products, uh, consumer-type products, you want somebody usually with access to markets and can bring you through the um, um, the regulations if, if necessary. I, I'm not averse to uh, uh, sharing equity at all. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess when you're doing a joint venture, I've had some experience of this trying to help a client uh, build a joint venture with a Spanish company. And uh, it can be quite a lot of challenges because people are putting their risk and their money um, t- together and, and having to trust the other partner to a, to, to a quite considerable degree. I, I, is that so? Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's true. But if you, lo- if you look at the at a view, and this is probably still naive after, the, after 50 years of doing this, mm-hmm. um, if you're going to grow in a country, you're going to have to trust somebody. Yeah. And so if you have, uh, if, if the country has a, a rule of law, and an awful lot of them don't, and if they have uh, regulations, companies, acts, and various things like that, and you establish something, you are still going to run into problems. Um, your contract is important. In fact, as, as you speak to me today, I am trying to finalize a contract with an American company, and there's goodwill on both sides. Mm-hmm. But this has been very difficult because the American lawyers representing this American company are determined to earn their dollars, so they keep raising issues, sure. which means I have to raise them with the Irish one. And when you do need a, a working document, and the probably internationally more important than even in Ireland, you must remember that the contract is for the divorce, not for the marriage. Yeah. And um, the, when, when things are going well, you don't have problems. It's when there are problems that you really need to see the small print in your contracts. And that can happen uh, for a variety of reasons. And um, actually, I have to say, will happen o- over time. And you just have to deal with it. But if, 
if your future lies in these markets, if that's where the market is, that's where you've got to be. Yeah. Do I detect that it's the Americans are bringing up the the legal details? You you would be happy to move forward with a with a simpler contract and more of a trust type arrangement? Is that your Not your default? Sure. No, no, I wouldn't say that. No. Uh, we we are at this stage now. We would have standard contracts. Yeah. Uh, which are quite long uh, and complicated. Um, it's the technical difficulties of lawyers who don't understand the legalities of whiskey. You know, the different yeah. things like OLAs and LPAs and regauge LAs, liters of pure alcohol, original liters, you know. Uh, so it does a learning experience. But then American lawyers can be very touchy. Uh, <laughs> and so too can Irish ones. Yeah. Uh, and I picked the America because you would say, well, that's an easy country to do business with. Um, Relying on kind of your 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 network of contacts, uh, for instance, in Europe, if you get into a distribution agreement, they are extremely difficult to get out of. Yeah, I'm sure you have found that. Yeah. Uh, France is appalling. Yeah, and um, so while you want to be very careful, you really can't wait forever until the best partner comes along. You may just have to take what's available to you. Um, if you're a small player, as we tend to be. Yeah. And I guess you've got to accept that level of risk and you've got to accept that mistakes will be made and you've got to, you've got to take them on the chin and, and just move on. Isn't yeah, it? try and yeah. minimize them as much as possible. Yeah. And um, in general, o- over, over the years, uh, I-, I think I've been happy enough. I mean, most business people are trying to do well. Not everybody sets out to, to take advantage of you or sure. to screw you or to run away with it. Now, Success in itself can be a problem, even more so in minerals, and maybe maybe in commercially too. If you suddenly have a business where you have the majority shares and it's suddenly doing very well, the local guy can say, "Well, look, I'm doing all the work and they're making all the money." Yeah, uh, that's going to happen, and yeah. they need renegotiation. And then the country may not be happy with you for doing various things, but. Uh, it's the nature of our business. That's what's going yeah. on. Do you have any funny cultural anecdotes from, from the years of doing business? You no, know, I haven't thought about it. I'm sure there are many of them. <laughs> uh, uh, um, and, but in general, the, over the years, even in some exotic locations uh, in Central Africa or uh, in South America, um, I haven't done that much in Asia yet. Uh, I, I, I tend to say that, you know, we're working, you, you meet in hotels, the, the people we tend to be work with may not be the poor locals. Yeah, sure. And uh, um, many of them are U.S. educated. Um, so we've something in common. Um, there's just one I was dealing with in the last couple of hours, in fact, who turned out to be an American uh, Harvard MBA and a Cambridge graduate and my partner is both of those yeah. so uh, you know the, the two of them could talk to each other all day long um, they're, they're alma mater yeah? absolutely yeah. alma maters <laughs> yeah uh, correct so yeah I'm, I'm bad on that but I mean you just get on with it you do it and, sure. and uh, I, 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 I struggle I'm not a great one for um I struggle with local foods, and because I don't drink, I really struggle with that. That if you, if you meet uh, in, in some of the Asian countries where, where yeah, it's you kind of expected, drink, yeah, a lot of drink and a lot of vodka. Yeah, no, it, it doesn't. But you know what? It, it, it just, the, probably the worst events I've had were in France and the, and the UK, where the UK chairman said, "I don't trust a man who doesn't drink," which was the end of that joint. <laughs> and in, particularly an Irish man who doesn't uh, drink. Yeah, uh, yeah. And in fact, the company afterwards went bust. I think that's, <laughs> that's, that's quite yeah, yeah. And the second one was a French one, where very keen to be our distributor in France, 
and we went through the various meetings um, with, with the board, went to have lunch and they had red wine and white wine and dessert wine and sweet wines and all kinds of things. And I was drinking, at least I had enough sense not to order Coca-Cola, um, <laughs> which would have really had me thrown out. Of the door. <laughs> I had water. On the way back, to, there was lots of murmurings. On the way back to the airport, the guy with me says, he said, what you think? I said, didn't think that the way. He said, it didn't go well at all. They said that was the first time since 1775 there was a non-drinker in the boardroom. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't get that deal either. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So the Teeling name now is is very much associated with whiskey. So how far back does that association well, there, go? There was there was a Teeling family had a distillery in Marabone Lane set up by Walter who lived in in, in the centre of the city uh, in 1782, taken over by his son John in 1791, and um, sold to Nicholas Rowe in 1803. Now I thought that was one of the many small distilleries that were around at the time. And are those tealings related to you? Are they your, your, your ancestors? <laughs> they, they, they're not that close because we mm. ended up in um, I, I'm Northside Dublin but uh, we, we, we claim them as ancestors anyway. They'll have the same DNA. I have a cousin <laughs> who does all of this who tells me um, that Ancestry.com and all well, that. Yeah. yeah, well this fella has it all and he told me he was in over the weekend he says he's 39% shares your DNA so he's a cousin. <laughs> uh, it's wonderful that you can do this nowadays. Yeah. And um, and so that was sold, and there was nothing happened then till till eighty till nineteen eighty six. The the reports or the uh, the proposal was written in nineteen seventy one, but you know lack of money and various other things meant that nothing happened until eighty six. Mm-hmm. And then you in in the eighties you set up Cooley Distillery. Is that correct? Yeah, I always wanted to do it. I thought at that stage there was a monopoly in Irish whiskey, and where there are monopolies, um, there's inefficiencies. And the monopoly, um, with respect to the people involved now, wasn't very good. It was four companies put together, and the and the, the owners of the four companies were all on the board. So really, it was a merger in name only. And it was going nowhere, and it was grossly overmanned and grossly inefficient. So my first attempt was, at that stage, I was strong in finance, was to buy it. I bought options uh, on 23% of the shares mm-hmm. and then lost my nerve and didn't proceed with the acquisition because I think the government would have really come after me as an asset stripper and really given me all kinds of troubles. So actually, that particular block of shares became the block that afterwards led to the acquisition by Pernod Ricard. Okay. Uh, instead of that, I bought... Uh, a closed alcohol plant on the Cooley Peninsula, one of four that had been known by the state in very poor parts of the country where there was blight on on the potatoes. They established these in the 30s to provide employment and they they decided that every gallon of petrol had to have 25% methanol which was made from potatoes. Now, hopelessly inefficient. But the plant in Cooley uh, had improved itself to the extent that it had changed to molasses and that the quality was very good and it went to um, into things like uh, Smirnoff Vodka and Bailey's at the time so uh, they did all but it was very inefficient it lost mm-hmm. money the whole time the government closed the four of them one night in 1986 and I bought the plant uh, at the end of 86 okay and the Cooley distillery then was sold to Jim Beam I think 2011 yeah, 2012 I was, I, I, I was 15 years too early and that we lost money for 11 years, nobody wanted to know. We couldn't get distribution. Even if we got onto a shelf, we couldn't get off the shelf. Yeah. Um, I I built two distilleries on site. The, the key to Cooley, and indeed the key to Great Northern, is that 85% of all the whiskies in the world are blends of malts made in pots mm-hmm. and grain whiskey made in columns. There are only three column distilleries in, in the country, and there was only one when, before I set up Cooley. 
and so I can provide blended whiskey. Uh, I can provide uh, grain whiskey to make blended whiskey to to the whole industry if necessary. And this is the Great Northern now. That's this is your Northern capability now. now. Yeah, where yeah. the, bo- the, the boys at the distillery in Dublin, the Teeling distillery in Dublin, is pots only, so we make single malt, okay, peated malt, uh, uh, maybe pots still. But and that, and that, that Teeling's distillery in in the Liberties, that, that that those are your sons, isn't that right? Uh, the two sons. Well, the family has shareholdings in it, and my two sons and my daughter essentially control Great Northern as well. Okay, uh, so that their families. Uh, Boys, I hate to be called boys, the two men in there <laughs> are uh, developing, they, they're a branded strategy. Great Northern is a bulk strategy, it's okay. quite different. But we'll end up, they're selling, Teeling after four years is selling in about 60 countries around the world. Great Northern will be supplying, it's still only about 14 or 16, but the companies we supply sell in at least that many countries around the world. Okay, and in fact in the Teeling distillery there's a, there's a lovely visitor centre, isn't that right, where people well, that can was, go? That was a very... Uh, interesting idea and it was they got the timing right when we, when we built rebuilt the Lox distillery in Kilpegan and reopened it in, in 2007 um, we, there was a small visitor centre which we, we grew up over time to about a thousand visitors a week but it was hard work and uh, Jack and Stephen decided that they'd have uh, a visitor centre though the distillery is essentially to make whiskey for their brand that's its purpose they have a nice visitor centre and it's well designed um, and uh, they, it, they thought they would attract a thousand visitors a week, fifty thousand a year. Whereas, in fact, now in their going into the fourth year, they were doing three thousand a week. And if you went in there today, now in, in at the end of June, July, it'd be very busy weekends. In fact, it's too busy now. So uh, they do seven hundred a day on, on the weekends. Yeah, in fact, I, I was looking at it recently for some uh, uh, friends, visitors from overseas, and it was full. Yeah, you know, it was full f- yes. for weeks out. And uh, well, yeah, they they they're running every twenty five minutes. I, I, every Twenty minutes. Mm. They need uh, that. The fact that it's full is a shock to them, in a way, <laughs> and so that they're having to revamp various things. They may not be able to grow that much further. And now there's more competition in the area because they they it's stimulated three other little distilleries in the area. Now that shouldn't surprise anybody. Yeah, like a cluster, isn't it? It's a yeah, cluster well, effect. There were Thirty-seven yeah. breweries and distilleries there in the 19th century. This is it. Ireland was the whiskey powerhouse in those days, wasn't it? Sixty percent of yeah. all of the world and the three biggest in the biggest distilleries in the whole world for everything were in were in the Liberties. Mm. Jemison just across the river and Powers at Tom Street and what was it that lost that for us oh inability to change technology it's incredible Mm. Uh, disruptive technology these columns I talked about where you could make as much whiskey in five days as the small little rural distilleries could make in 90 Um, but it came off the top of the pots of the columns I should say as uh, 94.8% pure alcohol and the, the Irish distiller said that's not whiskey and they're right of course it's not whiskey it's paint stripper it's alcohol <laughs> we'll kill you yeah. if you drink it yeah. and none of the three huge distilleries in Dublin ever ever put in, in pots this are ever in columns this really drove me mad for a long time when I studied it in the States I couldn't understand how they could be so silly mm. as to not bring in new technology they were purists I guess were they no they, they were stupid <laughs> because okay. the new examples you see now is Nokia which led the world yes. 60% but couldn't yeah. adapt to the new technology and I wonder very much what's going to happen with Ford General Motors with the autonomous cars will they be able to adapt culturally that's it and okay. I suspect not. Mm-hmm. Some and of them won't. There will yeah, be there be will gone. be casualties. Yeah. Yeah, they'll just be gone. And so I was unfair on on the principles. They were looking at this and saying, "But you know, everything we know about whiskey for eight generations um, says that this is not whiskey. So we can't do it. We won't be true to our 
to our ancestors and they never did and we went from 60% of the world to having 2% of scotch unbelievable collapse I really it was when I saw that collapse is why I decided <laughs> I, would, I would look at the why of it and then decided I could build a distillery it couldn't be that bad make the comeback and Irish whiskey is now what the fastest growing brown oh, yeah, beverage in the world good in that yeah. about 2000 things changed and you should think about it because young people just will not do what their parents did and as I heard me mention my boys they hate to be called boys <laughs> Jack and Stephen say hey I, I'm not John Teeling son I'm Jack Teeling I'm my own man yeah. and young Americans started to drink bourbon and uh, because it was sweeter but they moved very quickly to Jemison and they're now moving from Jemison to all the other Irish brands yeah. because Irish is is slightly sweeter and more mellow than bourbon because again the, the, you're using more pot still in it it will be more mellow and um now, in 130 countries, Irish is growing at more than 10% It's amazing. Yeah. Um, Great success story. Oh, it's, well, it, it's time, and it's probably generational. Um, from the areas that you and I have been talking about, the newer markets, um, there are separate markets there. You have the rich uh, people who want to be international, and they tend to travel. This will be in Asia and maybe parts of South America. They will be older in their 40s or 50s. Um, and then you have the emerging young middle class in their 20s and 30s who want to be like all the people in the West. So two quite separate markets. One would be aged malts. The other one is probably entry-level whiskies. Mm-hmm. Um, and you will may have noticed Irish has been expanding its range of products very well. They're doing a very good job. Scotch may have may actually have the cultural dilemma I mentioned. Yes. Uh, Scotch blend is not a product of choice for young people anymore, and long may that last. I'm mm-hmm. delighted with that. <laughs> so talking about Irish entrepreneurship, you're talking about your sons or the, or the boys, as you <laughs> call them. Yeah. Um, it's a new generation of Irish entrepreneurs, and entrepreneurship seems to be alive and well here since the, recep- the recession. So where do you think the big opportunities are for us as a country in, with our, our entrepreneurship? I think it's spectacular that what has happened in, 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 if you take 40 years because in the 70s, as you rightly said, it, you know, entrepreneurship hardly existed and if it did is, um, you know, people really looked at it bad that there was no fortune ever properly made and people there were really begrudges. Now, it's not a peculiarly Irish thing, but it was it was seen to be and, you know, the, our, our background is it not easy for for a, a, a camel to get through the eye of a needle oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. having that kind of cutology um, I don't know and I'm sure your listeners don't know that the eye of a needle is a small gate in, in, in the walls of Jerusalem I didn't know that Christian Brothers didn't tell me I didn't know that either no, no exactly so it has nothing to do with anything it's a small gate and so when a loaded camel came along they had to remove the load the camel could get through the wall they had to bring their load through and put it back on the camel that's the eye of the needle <laughs> See, okay. I was saying you've learned something. <laughs> so it wasn't impossible. I learned that at a Jewish university in America. And um, I think there are opportunities. We, we, we have a very good primary uh, education here. The three R's are very good. And in general, secondary education is very good. So the people are well educated. I, I learned not to like the highly specialized uh, third level education when you're 17 I, I prefer the American system the good schools where you, you do a lot more liberal arts and yes. history of art and all that you kind of you become a much more well-rounded yeah. business well, person also yeah. gets, I think it trains your mind to look at differences sure um, I think that as a rock in the North Atlantic which is what we are um, where anything heavy needs to be transported um, we, we have lots of disadvantages I think the IDA have been brilliant over the last 40 years. I mean, you have to just take your hat off to them mm-hmm. in that they played the game very, very well for having cheap 
labor we have english speaking labor so for american companies coming to ireland with technology we've a huge advantage which i think is grossly underplayed uh, in other words you, you have a choice between coming here with 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 a technology company or going to any of eastern europe or say greece mm-hmm. your manuals are in english irish people can read them yeah your supervisors can read them and can talk to them to translate these into these other languages one you have to get translations and two you have to believe that translations are true <laughs> and so i i think this is a big advantage which is not labor related i think our technology is is our technology technological universities have done well um, so i think we will continue to be attractive that way i think where we've got some fabulous spin-offs the likes of of um, Seamus Mulligan who spun off from Elan and earlier times uh, there was a company Digital Equipment in Galway went bust and uh, uh, spun off maybe eight or ten startups and um, I again think we're very positive in terms Enterprise Ireland have done a very good job with their almost a one-stop shop now they can be bureaucratic as, as as civil servants are and it can take some time and i'm sure people are saying listen here i spent six months trying to get trying to get approval from enterprise i understand that mm-hmm. and um uh, maybe worse than it was you know when it was set up uh, opportunities for us i think will be in areas that are education type related um i think they're going to be in the east i have met some people recently who won who young Chinese man who came here and went to Griffith College, liked what they were doing, went back to his city in China, I can't remember, it only has 9 million people, so it's only a little city, <laughs> um, and set up the Griffith College's equivalent and then integrated backwards into private high school education because the Chinese system's not good and he's a 40-year-old billionaire now. Yeah, amazing. Um, and sending a lot of people to Griffith and to UCC now uh, as, as, as higher level students. So there'll be areas there that, that are slowly creeping up. Um, I think that we have opportunities in the whole tourism sector and uh, more, more to grow. Now, it's hard to become a big world-class company at that stage. But the likes of, of the direct flights into Dublin, they've done a very good job there too. These three Chinese airlines flying are three sources, Hong Kong, Shenzhen and Beijing, mm-hmm. to Dublin will have a big impact. You'll have Indian. Indians are arriving now. Thais are arriving now. These are people with big opportunities and we have a lot to offer them. Agriculture, yes, because green is quality. Yeah, um, that yeah. just has to continue to grow. Um, there was a company here from Thailand last week, which was the biggest shrimp producer in the world. Our prawns and lobsters and things, I don't know what they'll do, but there's the possibility of a joint venture with them. I would imagine it's not for me. I was looking at other things. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I will be at the situation now. These are areas outside mine. I see more opportunities now than I ever did. My problem now is, A, I'm older. B, I'm, I'm kind of busy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I haven't got as much time to look at, at the opportunities. Um, Something I notice when you look at Ireland's export figures in the aggregate, they look very impressive. But when you strip out the multinationals and look at the indigenous exporters, uh, it's not so impressive outside of UK, US, and near EU. We don't seem to diversify as much as our peers, say, the, you know, the likes of Belgium and Denmark and Switzerland and so on. So, what do you think is holding back our diversification? I, I think that's a very significant point hmm. in, in, in that I, I'm even, I'd be more gloomy than you I think it's still largely UK Northern Ireland and UK for the bulk of Irish companies yeah. who don't what, like to go too far what from What do you think is going on there? I, I, I think culturally they're not able to do it they don't have vision they can't get their head up Yeah, uh, they just can't see So it's a confidence and, uh, confidence and competence yeah, thing yeah, 
uh, and the competence who's going to do it and they don't really want it. The, the dislocation factor you know you would see if you were working in Germany and you're stuck in Frankfurt at 4 o'clock on a Friday afternoon you're missing the kids party um, nah, you know that's yeah. the world we're in yeah. and uh, you're going to have to do it and as we go further abroad into Eastern Europe into Asia into South America yeah you're going to have to look at, at areas like this where um, the job is not nine to five, uh, and the companies that many, many, many Irish companies are lifestyle companies. Yeah, the indigenous companies—they don't really want it. They want enough to make a living. Uh, the ones that want to grow, uh, they do grow now. Some of them fail, and more will continue to fail. Mm-hmm. But I think the you know you you look at the ones uh, that have some some particular competence. And there aren't that many of those. I mean, yeah. one of the joys of Irish whiskey is it can only be made in Ireland, thank God. <laughs> because outside of that, there's, you know, the technology is not particularly difficult. Yeah. But it can only be made in Ireland. It has to be matured in Ireland for three years as well. So yeah. that, that, that gives us a point of difference. Um, and you're going to have to play on those because uh, uh, unless you have a very rare skill um, and you're trying to compete on a big world uh, you're going to have to have local people, you know, locals out there. And, and we don't have the actual venture capital to grow our companies that fast. Yeah. Okay. And what we're seeing now, I'm seeing a lot with my clients, is a, a tightening labour market, particularly for frontline personnel in logistics, supply chain operations, which is my, my area. But I guess it's affecting all, all sectors. What do you think this tightening labour market is going to mean for us in the next few years? I wonder how far it's gone. It's, it's, it's very strong in Dublin, it's obvious. And I would suspect it's, down, it's up and down the East Coast. I'm not so sure about it. I've just spent a week around the country, which I hadn't done for a long time. And, and there are certain parts of the country where the closed shops in the, in the, in the main streets are depressing. Yeah. And so and the, the labour would, wouldn't be as tight. Certainly, if you're in Dublin, you're in big trouble. Yeah. Um, particularly if you're trying to do early paid, like, say, the, the visitor centres. That, that's a big issue. Uh, in Dundalk, we have only, uh, we don't have that many operatives because we're almost entirely automated. But still, uh, and we've been lucky in the people, really lucky with the people we've wanted uh, wanted to get and have been able to get. I, I, I think it's going to, um, it'll certainly restrict growth. Um, definitely, uh, mm. because you won't have the people. Getting the type of people who are prepared to go and spend a year or two years um, abroad, which which is what's needed. I think the European Orientation Programme, YBEC, EOP, the one that's run where you get young people for 18 months abroad, is a very good programme. Now, the negative is they are young, they are inexperienced. Um, they wouldn't have the contacts. And I have a lot of experience of it between Cooley. I know that Jack and Stephen have done it in Teeling. We've looked at it, where you take somebody really bright as a button, raring to go, full of energy (laughs) and full of enthusiasm, willing willing to go every uh, out every night doing whiskey tastings. That that sounds great, maybe to a couple of you, but after the first ten days, it must be a pain in the neck. Um, And you're doing it every week. So they're great people, full of enthusiasm, whether or not they have the skills they're going to make mistakes and you don't want them to make too many mistakes on your watch so I, I think um, experienced personnel to go into the new markets will be increasingly tight and are very highly valued already uh, I'm sure you're seeing in logistics um, the, the people who know how to handle 
cargoes around the world and, and areas like that are in tight supply and are costing a lot of money now. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Well, what's your view on what's happening now? So we seem to be in a kind of a kickback against uh, globalization. And I guess globalization is something we've profited from really well as a, as, as a country. But Brexit, you know, protectionism, rising nationalism, where do you see this whole thing going? Is it, is it going to unravel or is it just a blip? I, oh, it's not a blip. Mm. I don't think it's a blip at all. Um, there's been a myth out there for a long number of times. My, my, some of my initial work in the 60s uh, uh, as a student was on international trade theory. It's not at all certain that globalization overall is good. It's just not. Mm-hmm. That people who are in, have been dominant for the last 40 years, if you look at the newspaper reporters, they assume ipso facto that uh, globalization is good. Sure, it's good for some. But uh, when you're doing a social cost-benefit analysis, and, and the objective of, of, of economics is maximum welfare, not maximum profit, um, it's very hard for you to say that the that, that millions and millions of people who've lost jobs, as the jobs have moved uh, across, that, that while some have benefited from it, their losses may be great. So there, there is a case to be made for trital restrictions. There's no doubt about that. There always was. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what's happening now. What is happening in the U.S., in terms of, if, uh, and, and it's been played very well, if you were around in the 70s, the rising sun was the danger. Absolutely. China yeah, I remember, Japan yeah. was wiping yeah. us all out. Yeah. And then, of course, China has come and eaten their lunch. And now what's happening, of course, Chinese costs are rising, and it's moving to India. Mm-hmm. And you can be, abs- I saw a presentation in the States, it was absolutely brilliant, where uh, the guy was asking a huge American audience of a thousand people who, of course, most Americans are very parochial. They hardly see uh, past their state. Never mind, they don't see anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were all, China was going to kill them and Trump was rising and all that. And he said, yeah, not at all. He says, your problem is coming down the road from India because yeah. China's getting old and getting expensive. But what was which really upset them was he said, what's it going to be in 2040? And they were looking at them. The people got India all right, some of the audience. Nobody got it. Africa. In 2040, which is only 20-odd years away, there'll be 2 billion Africans. And they are the ones with the money, and they're with the young people. And they will want to, they will be taking this, at that stage, they'll be taking the uh, textiles and the plastics and the the metal bashing from, from the likes of India. Uh, and we'll be going to Africa. The Indians will be going mad. At that stage, <laughs> China will be old. Yes. <laughs> That's exactly what's yeah, going to happen. Yeah. So uh, you have to compete with that, and you have to face that. So I, I, globalization, and in terms of, of of nationalism, this will undoubtedly get me into, because I'm, I'm, I'm a kind of, go some of the way down the road. I'm very strong Irish, and, uh, you know, a great gore and mm-hmm. a believer in, in, in Irish culture. Um, there, has, there is no doubt about it that over time bureaucracies take over and what's been happening in, in, in places like Brussels where unelected officials who pay themselves vast salaries and huge benefits and make rules uh, that are predominantly in their own interest. Now, that's not to say we haven't benefited, but uh, they are not necessarily what you want to see. Um, what's happening in the States was going to happen anyway. The fact that 44% of people like what Trump is doing, it's not to do with Trump, they like what he's doing, yeah. um, shows that people are dissatisfied with what has gone on in Washington, and the politicians in Washington didn't see it. And in fact, I'm not so sure they still do. Mm-hmm. And I'm certain that the media doesn't. I'm absolutely certain that the media doesn't see this at all. Um, and um, so uh, things are cyclical. Uh, there is going to be 
change is certainly coming. I, I think a lot of the work done by the states where they took on China and they took on Mexico and they took on Canada uh, will improve a lot of the U.S., definitely, because it was very one-sided, the, the trade. You, if you look at American trade with India, India has vast restrictions on American trade. Mm-hmm. And yet they've had free entry to the U.S. Uh, Trump says, why would we allow that? Yeah. Um, now, um, again, I have to be extremely careful <laughs> because we here in Ireland shout and roar and, and object to Trump restricting immigration into Mexico, or from, Mexi- from South America, and not so much Mexico, into mm-hmm. the U.S., and yet we don't let anybody in. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> so, but I'm not allowed to say that. <laughs> <laughs> there is a certain amount of uh, double standards in uh, those conversations. Totally, right. uh, yeah, yeah, we think all the Irish illegals should be made legal in America, but yeah. not the illegals in Ireland. Sure. Yeah, so, you know, yeah, we... we, we ah, but. <laughs> <laughs> so outside of work then, what, what, what kind of things do you like to do, John? It's a, it's a very good question because until I was um, in my 60s, I played cricket and rugby. Now, all right, from 62, when I stopped kind of junior league, uh, I, I played gold notice and I got hurt. And I, my, my brother, who's my GP, refused to have me stitched up and operated on because he said, if I, if I cure him quick, he'd go back to playing. He was right. Um, <laughs> so I'm a bit at a loss. I, I, I don't sail. I don't play golf. And I don't do horses, okay. which means, you know, I, I don't do the things my contemporaries do. Mm-hmm. Um I have, I could do with having more active hobbies, definitely, having even one. Now, I still follow rugby and I would still follow cricket and um, I do it with my, with my grandchildren. Um, but uh, I need more, more activities. I would spend far too much time working at my age, much too much time <laughs> working. And even though my wife says I can retire at 95, you should talk to her because that's exactly what she says. Yeah. Um, the last thing she wants is me in the house. I don't think she'd live with me. She'd be, one of us would be gone. Um, so uh, I uh, had thought of going back uh, uh, to college to do geography. I loved geography in UCD. That yeah. was very good. As did I. Yep. I was very, very, very keen on geography and, and that history. That explains maybe why you're international as well. It, yes, it does. It does. Yes, it's a lot to do with it. It's a lot to do with it. And um, I have a sister who's just retired as a professor of medicine, and she's going back to UCD to do Latin and history, which there you I think go. is fascinating. Yeah, good brilliant. Good her. Brilliant. And um, so... I have many things, as I said, I have more opportunities than I want. Uh, I'm older. I'm not as fit as I was because I'm not playing rugby. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a bite in South Africa a couple of years ago, which led to a, a kind of a form of Lyme's disease, which, okay. which was cured because it was yeah. found early, but still took about two years out of me. Yeah. Um, and these are my excuses. In other words, I'm saying I don't have hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> well, it looks like for the future, you're going to be very, very active, um, w- whatever it is, whatever way you decide to go, whether it's more business or more learning. Or, but there's great opportunities, yeah. really great opportunities uh, out there. Um, I probably need more people working with me. Um, and uh, certainly the minerals have been a complete disaster for the last eight or nine years with a number of listed companies and mm-hmm. they're all in trouble. Okay. But we keep seeing seeing um, light at the end of the tunnel. Nobody else does, but we do. <laughs> and uh, our straw's in the wind. <laughs> but that's because our haystack is blown away. Um, and so 
uh, I'd hope to see one of those would go. The whiskey still has a long way to go, and it's very exciting um, for us. And um, that, I think there's certainly three or four or five very active years, and hopefully I'm, I'm healthy enough to be able to do it. And then I, I can reassess. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you will be. And uh, <laughs> yeah, thank you for your hope. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, look forward to, uh, to talking to you more. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today, John. You wouldn't believe the time has flown by. We've been talking for over half an hour, I think, at this stage. So thank you very much for your for your perspective, and it's been an absolute pleasure. Many thanks, it's John. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Good luck. Bye bye. Take care. Broadcasting to South Dublin on ninety three point nine. This is Dublin South FM.